spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son? And elsewhere in scripture says, and again when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O Lord, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Elsewhere he says, In the beginning of, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. And to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you have spoken uh, through your prophets in the past and in these last days uh, through Jesus Christ, your Son. And Lord, we uh, pray that as we come to your word that you would help us to listen to you uh, and to receive your words in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, continuing this morning our series on, uh, uh, on the Bible and on what the Bible says about the Bible. Uh, and 
if you've come along specifically to, to hear about the Bible, uh, then uh, that's great. If you're visiting this morning, then, then uh, we pray that, uh, that you'll uh, enjoy and, and uh, profit by this uh, series on the Bible. Last week uh, we asked the first question, which was, what is the Bible? Uh, which is a straightforward question, and we saw from the Bible that the Bible is God's word written for his people by his spirit uh, about his son. And this week we're trying to narrow in a little bit uh, onto some of uh, the specifics of God's word, what that means, and we're looking at the authority of the Bible. What kind of authority does the Bible have? Should we listen to the Bible or not? Uh, Should we listen to all of it or just some of it? Uh, And what kind of authority does the Bible have compared to other things, to other books? And how do we know uh, that we should listen to the Bible at all? Well, a great place to start in thinking about those questions is that passage that Chris just read for us uh, from Hebrews chapter 1. And it begins with that profound statement, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has spoken uh, in the Old Testament through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ. And the rest of the chapter goes on to spell out who this Jesus is who is speaking. Verse 5, he is the Son of God. Verse 6, he's worshipped by the angels because he is God. Verse 8, his throne lasts forever and ever. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Verse 10, he laid the foundation of the earth and created the stars and the universe. Verse 13, he will conquer his enemies. The point of saying all that is so that he can get to his point at the beginning of chapter 2 where he says, we must pay more careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? What does it mean that God has spoken? It means that we need to listen. The Old Testament message had and has binding authority. Uh, so often in the Old Testament uh, when you read it, you find particularly in older versions, it's kind of, you don't see it as much these days uh, in the newer versions but you find an expression they did not listen to my voice nowadays they just say they did not obey me but literally it's often they did not listen to my voice they didn't listen to God's voice to to listen to God's voice means to obey God it didn't just mean to listen to God's audible voice often it actually meant to listen to what God had spoken to Moses and written down or to some other prophet uh, and written down To listen to God's voice was to listen listen to the words that God uh, had given that had been written down by God and by God's servants. And while it was important, the writer of Hebrews says, to listen uh, to what the Old Testament uh, says, the message which comes through Jesus Christ is even more crucial to listen to. Just because uh, Jesus has come doesn't mean the Old Testament is irrelevant anymore. But it does mean that to know the Old Testament without knowing Jesus is to miss the point of the Bible. We saw that last week. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus and so to know the Old Testament, to know parts of the Bible without knowing Jesus is to miss the point of the Bible. If not listening to the Old Testament was a disaster 
and every punishment and every disobedience receives its just punishment, then not listening to the full revelation about Jesus is even more catastrophic. Jesus says uh, something similar himself in Matthew chapter 7. Turn to, uh, to Matthew chapter 7 if you've got your Bibles with you where Jesus uh, finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7 uh, and verse 24 and he says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Whoever listens to Jesus is a wise person and whoever doesn't listen to Jesus is a fool. What does the authority of the Bible mean for us? It means that God's words must not simply be heard or received or read but listened to and believed and trusted and obeyed. God says, repent and believe in Jesus. It's not enough just to hear the message, repent and believe in Jesus. We need to repent and believe in Jesus. God says, Jesus says, give up uh, everything and follow me. It's not enough to hear that uh, and to go, well, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? No, we need to give up everything and to follow Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not enough to hear that and go, well, isn't that a, a, a lovely sentiment, isn't it? No, we need to come to the Father through Jesus and not look for another way. What does the authority of the Bible mean? It means that we need to believe and obey God's words to us in the Bible. Here's a useful test to see if you're doing that, if you're not just hearing but also believing and trusting and obeying. Here's the test when was the last time that the Bible changed your life? It's a good thing to sit down and to think about. When was the last time the Bible, hearing something in the Bible, actually led to a change in your life? When was the last time it drove you to your knees in repentance and a faith in Christ? When was the last time it caused you to put something on? The joy of the Gospel. When was the last time it lightened your eyes, gave you hope or love or compassion? In the past God spoke through the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son Jesus Christ and we need to listen. So the Bible is God's authoritative word and we need to listen to God by listening to his words in the Bible. But it's also important to say, I think, that all the Bible is God's authoritative word. We saw last week that all the Bible is God's word, all the Bible is breathed out by God, written by the Holy Spirit through God's uh, servants. All of it was written down for us by God so that we would have it, so we would know what God has said. And it's tempting to think that 
now that Jesus has come, that the Old Testament in particular no longer has any authority. We might think it's still uh, relevant, but we might think that it doesn't have any authority anymore. But Jesus says that's not true. If you flick back a a few pages to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus very explicitly says, in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, unless, uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law or the prophets. Jesus is saying that everything that had been written down in the past, everything written down in the Old Testament is still authoritative, it's still important. It wouldn't pass away, it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Time and again Jesus answers his critics in the Gospels by saying, haven't you read? Have you you read in the Old Testament where it says, blah, 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 blah. What's uh, interesting too in the book of Hebrews, which we read from before, is that for a book so concerned about people listening to Jesus, it's awfully concerned with the Old Testament. It has a surprising number of quotes uh, and references to the Old Testament Uh, The first chapter, as we read, is almost entirely Old Testament quotes and that continues through the whole book. uh, Hebrews is arguably about the Old Testament. Uh, It's about Moses, it's about the Sabbath, it's about Aaron the high priest and the other priests, it's about Old Testament sacrifices, it's about Old Testament laws, it's about Old Testament believers. To pay attention to the message about Jesus is to pay attention to the whole Bible. Because, as we keep discovering, the whole Bible is actually about Jesus. The Bible is God's authoritative word and all the Bible is God's authoritative word. There's no part of the Bible which isn't a part that we need to listen to. We don't get to just pick and choose what we want and throw away the bits that we don't like. Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of the founding fathers of America, actually did that. He actually literally cut up the Bible and threw away the bits that he didn't like. He got uh, a number of copies of the Bible and he took his razor blade and he cut out the bits that he wanted and glued them into another book which he called something like The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth or something like that. You can still buy it uh, on Amazon. It was republished a few years ago. It's 99 cents if you've got uh, a Kindle. Um, It's also very short, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, But the Guardian uh, newspaper writing about uh, its republication a few years ago wrote, uh, the Jefferson Bible omits many passages fundamental to mainstream Christianity including the resurrection and ascension to heaven, the Holy Ghost and the Holy Trinity. I think it's very peculiar that he threw out the bits that were divine and kept the bits that were moral. You'd think you'd throw out the bits that were moral and uh, save a bit of religiosity uh, for fun. But I guess without a divine God, uh, morals are just a great aspiration rather than a heavenly law given by a heavenly lawgiver. 
the uh, church father Augustine was smart enough to realise where Jefferson's uh, line of reasoning went. He wrote centuries before, to believe what you please and not to believe what you please is to believe yourselves and not the gospel. To determine which bits of the Bible you'll listen to and which bits of the Bible you won't listen to is to make yourself the ultimate authority. It's to make yourself God. And what's so disturbing, I think, for us is that we might be intellectually committed to the idea of the authority of the Bible but then actually undermine it in the way that we live. We undermine the authority of the Bible by ignoring the parts of the Bible that we don't like. We believe those bits, but we choose not to read them. I suspect one of the reasons that the minor prophets, the really small prophets at the end of the Old Testament, I suspect one of the reasons that nobody ever reads the minor prophets is because they're deeply challenging to a materialistic Western culture. The minor prophets often decry the oppression and wealth of the rich and ruling classes and the oppression, the oppression by those people of the poor. We undermine the authority of the Bible by excusing ourselves from what it says. The Bible says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven and we say to ourselves, but I can make it work. Or Jesus says, you can't love both God and money, but we say, well, I'm going to give it a try. It seems to be working out for the most part already. Uh, let's just give it a few more years and see if, that, uh, if it works out. The Bible says, forgive, but we harbour grudges. It's always a bad sign, I reckon, when you, uh, when you start a sentence, I know the Bible says, but... But surely the situation then was different to now. Surely my situation is unique to every other person's situation, every other person who's ever lived. No, the whole Bible is God's authoritative word and we need to receive God's words, first of all, about forgiveness and mercy and new life in Jesus Christ, and then we need to keep receiving the Bible's words about what it means to follow Christ in that new life. So the Bible is God's authoritative word and all of the Bible is God's authoritative word but now only the Bible is God's authoritative word. A great example of that principle is in Mark chapter 7. Turn uh, with me to Mark chapter 7. So Matthew, Mark, Mark chapter 7. And there Mark uh, says in, in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. Oh, it's good to see that they were clean people. Uh, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? 
He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. So some of the Pharisees had come to Jesus and, they, and they're asking him, they have all these traditions, all these cleaning things that they do and they ask Jesus why his disciples don't do the same thing, why they don't follow the traditions of the elders that have been handed down. And Jesus basically says to them, forget about your traditions. You've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to the traditions of men. Now, it's not that traditions are wrong. It's not that traditions in and of themselves are wrong. What's wrong is when those traditions replace the Bible or when those traditions replace the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Philip Jensen had a, uh, had a great illustration of that at the recent Challenge Conference. Philip Jensen is um, the Dean of the Anglican Cathedral in Sydney and he made the point that if somebody comes to him and says, we'd like you to wear your ecclesiastical robes because the pattern of those robes matches so nicely the architecture and the columns of, uh, of the cathedral. You know, we just think it would look fantastic if you wear the robes. Philip Jensen would go, absolutely, let's wear the robes. But if someone comes to him and says, we need you to wear your robes so that you can fulfil your ministry, and without those robes, your ministry is powerless and void, then he'll say, I'm not going to wear those robes under any circumstances. It's not that traditions are wrong, but it's when those traditions rob the gospel of its truth. In fact, what's so profound about what Jesus says here is that he says adding to the gospel is actually taking away from the gospel. Isn't that strange? That actually adding to the gospel actually subtracts from the gospel. He says their traditions nullify the word of God. They make it nothing. Their traditions stop them from honouring their mother and father. Their traditions are actually a way out of obeying God and trusting Jesus. J.C. Ryle wrote in his book, Knots Untied, there are many ways in which the faith of Christ may be marred and spoiled without being positively denied. The gospel, in fact, is a most curiously and delicately compounded medicine and a medicine that is very easily spoiled. You may spoil the gospel by substitution, you have only to withdraw from the eyes of the sinner the grand object which the Bible proposes to faith, Jesus Christ, and to substitute another object in his place, the church, the ministry, the confessional, baptism or the Lord's Supper, and the mischief is done. Substitute anything for Christ and the gospel is totally spoiled. 
You may spoil the gospel by addition. You have only to add to Christ, the grand object of faith, some other object as equally worthy of honour and the mischief is done. You may spoil the gospel by interposition. You have only to push something between Christ and the eye of the soul to draw away the sinner's attention from the Saviour and the mischief is done. You may spoil the gospel by disproportion. You have only to attach an exaggerated importance to the secondary things of Christianity and a diminished importance to the first things and the mischief is done. You see, what's so insidious about this kind of arithmetic is that we think that we're actually doing and helping out the gospel. We think we're adding to the gospel and helping out God a bit. But actually we're robbing the gospel. Here are some examples of the ways that we and other churches try to add to the gospel and end up replacing the gospel. These come from, from a book, the book by Peter Adam written for us. Uh, and he lists a number of ways that we uh, try to add to the gospel. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church accepts the Bible and then adds to the Bible the traditions uh, of the church to form one word of God. Some conservative evangelical Christians tend to add the middle class culture and attitudes of the 1920s to the Bible uh, without noticing what they're doing. Some Pentecostal churches accept the Bible and then add to it some recent words from the Spirit. Legalistic evangelicals expand the Bible by adding some useful rules about how we should behave. Many uh, denominations hold to their cherished denominational traditions even more firmly than they hold to the Bible. Liberal Christians hold on to recent insights from current thought even when they contradict the Bible. And many congregations hold to their cherished traditions even more firmly than they hold to the Bible. Many Christian subcultures unconsciously add to the Bible their own assumptions and their own prejudices. And to that list I think I'd probably add that many Christians hold to the views of their favourite writers or preachers or theologians more than they hold to the Bible. It's worth spending some time, I think, uh, this week thinking about what you add to the Bible and what you take away from the Bible and thinking about what we as a church add to the Bible and what we as a church take away from the Bible. All the Bible and only the Bible is God's authoritative word and because it's God's word we should listen to it because God is speaking to us in the Bible. I love uh, these words from Archbishop Cranmer who uh, wrote in the 16th century, therefore forsaking the corrupt judgment of fleshly men which care not but for their carcass, let us reverently hear and read holy scriptures which is the food of the soul. Let us diligently search for the well of life in the books of the New and Old Testament and not run to the stinking puddles of men's traditions devised by man's imagination for our justification and salvation. For in Holy Scripture is fully contained what we ought to do and what we ought to eschew, what to believe, what to love and what to look for at God's, hand, at God's hands. The Bible is God's authoritative word, all the Bible 
and only the Bible is God's authoritative word to us. But before we uh, finish, I think it's important to uh, say something briefly about the apparent problem of looking to the Bible to see whether the Bible is something that we should listen to. Uh, looking to the Bible to establish its own authority. Uh, it seems like a circular argument. It's a bit like you saying to me, why should I listen to you? And me saying, because I told you to. Uh, it's a circular argument. Uh, it doesn't really work. The, uh, a theologian by the name of Martin Bucer, who was, lived at the time of the Reformation, realised that... Um, Rightly, I think that authority is not something that we grant to something, but it's something that we recognise. And he gave the example of a coin and recognising that a coin is valid currency. We don't look at the coin and go, that is valid currency. And everyone goes, wow, that's valid currency. Uh, It is or it isn't, and we recognise that or we fail to recognise its authority as valid currency. It's something which is intrinsically true about the coin. The same is true uh, of a book on gardening. We don't make a book on gardening an authority on gardening. It either is or it isn't. And the more we use that book and the more we read it and, and test it out and try what it says, the more we discover that it is an authority on gardening. It's the same with a person. If you meet a person for the first time, you can't know whether or not you should trust them. How do I know if I, tr- if I should trust this person? They say, you know what you should do? You should, uh, you should invest your money in uh, blah, 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 blah. How do you know? How do you know if you should trust them? Well, you listen to them. And the more you listen to them, the more you get to know them and the more you know whether or not they're trustworthy and reliable and knowledgeable. That happened in the Old Testament. So uh, uh, the Queen of Sheba had heard about Solomon's wisdom and so she went to see whether it was all that it was cracked up to be. And when she got there she went, yes, you really are as wise as I've heard you are. Uh, I can see that your wisdom comes from God. Uh, It was true of the laws that God gave the people in Exodus. He, He said that in giving the people these laws that the other nations would look at him and they'd go, those laws are awesome. They're the best laws that anybody has. Surely this is a, this is a great nation and a wise and an understanding people. It happened at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus had finished speaking in Matthew chapter 7. We read there, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. I always found that so baffling. Like, you know... How did they suddenly realise that Jesus had authority? I I never could work out what that meant. But it's because authority is not something that we grant, but it's something that's recognised. They heard what Jesus said and they went, this guy makes sense. This guy's words make sense of our lives. This guy's words make sense of the world that we're living in. These words are profound words. Not like the words of our teachers of the law, which are confused and contradictory and strange and human words. No, Jesus had authority because his words were profound and deep. They were the very words of God.
And what was true of Jesus' words in that day is true of God's words in the Bible today. How can we know, how can you know whether God's words in the Bible are really God's words, God's authoritative words to be listened to? You can know by listening to those words and testing them and putting them into practice and seeing that they are true and they are authoritative. We can't work it out without listening to them. We can't work out whether the Bible is authoritative without listening to the Bible. And we can't even work out whether the Bible is true and authoritative just by listening. We need to listen and put those words into practice and test them and see. And as we do that, we will see that they're reliable words and wise words and profound words. They're words which speak with authority on our world. They speak truthful words, historically, psychologically and experientially. All the Bible and nothing but the Bible is God's authoritative word to humanity and we need to listen to God by listening to God's words to us in the Bible. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your words make sense and are deeply profound. Thank you, Lord, that when we hear them and put them into practice, they resonate with us and with our existence and with the way that we find this world to be. Lord, they speak of our human depravity, which we see on display every day. Lord, they speak of our powerlessness and of your great might, which we see on display every day. They speak of our inability to save ourselves, our inability to live up to your expectations, our reality which we see on display every day. Lord, they speak of your mercy and of your grace in Jesus Christ. They speak of your, the powerful work of your spirit which transforms lives, which opens the eyes of uh, those who are spiritually blind and leads them into the light of your truth. Lord, thank you that your words speak with truth and authority about our, word, about our world. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive your words in the Bible and to listen to them, to obey them and to receive the great message in them about the gospel of Jesus Christ through whom we can be reconciled to you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.